If you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, and follow along as I read. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and heard me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. May God bless the reading of his word. I'm a fan of Dilbert. And uh, Dilbert's laws of work I've found to be just so helpful and so encouraging. Here here they are, okay? Uh, I didn't include a couple, but here are several of Dilbert's laws of work. Uh, And you can jot these down and use them in your workplace if you want to. Don't be irreplaceable. If you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. Waka waka. All right. When you don't know what to do, walk fast and look worried. Everything can be filed under miscellaneous. If you are good, you will be assigned all the work. If you're really good, you will get out of it. If it wasn't for the last minute, nothing would get done. And Rochelle and I actually have a a variation of that that we recite to one another, which is the deadline is my inspiration. (laughs) And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's my personal favorite, all right, of Dilbert's Laws. Eat one live toad the first thing in the morning and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. (laughs) The passage that we have just read uh, says we are going to be hated by the world. And that might seem like a very tough pill to swallow, maybe even a live toad. But Jesus wants to give us a fact that makes this a completely different flavor. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. Now, last week, we talked about one mission. We are here to make disciples. This week, we are going to accomplish that mission undaunted and unafraid. Now, we're working through the upper room discourse. We're not doing it in exact order. We're kind of picking up different concepts through it. But this morning, we are going to receive from Jesus a critical mission briefing. He's asking us to use our time on earth to make disciples, but to do so fully aware that we are operating in hostile territory. Now, in order for you to understand what Jesus is saying, I actually need to give you some background from two different passages. Uh, First, from Daniel 2, and then from Romans 1. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, 
In Romans 2, we won't read the whole chapter, it's pretty long. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a great statue that was actually God's way of giving him a glimpse of future empires. And then you know what happened. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, I want the wise man to come interpret the dream, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. And the wise man said, that's impossible. Uh, And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if you don't do it, you're all going to die. And so Daniel uh, said, let me talk to God about it. And he and his friends prayed. And God allowed him to not only know the vision, but know what it means. In this vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw this giant statue and there was a head of gold, a chest of silver, a bronze midsection, and then legs of iron and feet of iron and ceramic or iron and clay. And this was designed to depict four empires that are going to occupy human history. In verse, 20, in verse 44 and 45 of chapter 2, we read this. <clears throat> in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So here's a picture for you of this, an artist's representation of of what Daniel was looking at. And you can see this this massive statue in which you see a, a gold head and then silver Uh, upper body and a bronze midsection and legs of iron and then toes of iron and clay. These four metals, interestingly, represent four defining elements of each of these empires. We're not going to do a whole study on the book of Daniel, but I'll I'll give you this, okay? Um, These four elements you could capture in the word wow, wampum, win, and whack. Wow means that uh, Babylon, which is the gold one, really depended upon basically worship and adoration, the wow factor. And that's really how Babylon maintained its control, was basically by saying Nebuchadnezzar is a god. Wampum, which is another term for money, was because the Medo-Persian Empire was really driven by mercantilism and silver was the currency of that empire and that's how it controlled everything. The win one has to do with bronze, and bronze armor was what uh, Alexander the Great invented, and that's a part of what made his armies so formidable, and he conquered the world. So that was the win one. And then the whack is the iron of Rome, which is about high control, basically forcing everybody to do what you want them to do. Interestingly, I won't be surprised if all four of those factors coalesce in the last form, the the clay and ceramic one, in which we're going to have an antichrist, who's the wow factor. You're going to have monetary implications. If you're not a part of this digital system that, uh, and you worship him, you're going to be disincluded. 
the win part, basically you're not going to be able to win and the intimidation factor is going to be on high. But those are all issues for another time and another sermon. All trace of these empires, and this is what you see in this image, all trace of these empires will utterly be utterly destroyed. They will disappear. There is a, there is a stone coming that is going to crash into this statue. And basically, every sign in the, in the Daniel account, every element is just blown away, literally. It doesn't exist anymore. God is going to replace the empire of man that is driven by awe and money and power and control. He is going to replace it with a non-derivative global kingdom. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up is not going to be just a a derivation of what has gone before. It's a replacement. And this kingdom will never be destroyed. Four empires have fallen already. We only have a half to go, which is the iron and clay or iron and ceramic. That is yet coming. The empire of man will be crushed when God sets up his kingdom. And the system will be, and I I learned this phrase a a while back on repairing cars, Uh, with all of these electronic components now, basically what they're saying is repair is by replacement. (laughs) The empire of man is going to be repaired by replacement. And Jesus is going to set up a new kingdom, and the kingdoms of man are going to disappear. Which means that our mission is a titanic rescue mission. The world which we occupy, the the world in which we dwell, I'm not a citizen of this world. If you know Jesus Christ, you aren't either. But the world where I am currently stationed is going to come to an end. My job, your job, if you know Jesus, we talked about it last week, is to rescue as many people as possible from the Titanic. The Titanic is not going to be saved. My job is to convince as many people as possible to jump in the lifeboat. Before we can rescue these men and women, we've got to convince them. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only rescue. Jesus is the only safe place. The the Titanic went down because it wasn't just a big hole. It was this gash that went through many compartments. It was not a large gash, but this large gash. And the minute that the boat had impacted the iceberg, it was going down. It was just a matter of time. That's the world we live in. All right, let me show you Romans 1, all right? Let me add to this picture of kind of the the big picture of our history and where we are. In Romans 1, in three passages, uh, in three verses, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, we read this phrase, God gave them over. And so I want to highlight what's going on there in that passage. It says, even though, this is verse 21, and then I'll read verse 24. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So what we see here is in stage one, you have a people 
who do not honor God. They may know of God's existence, but they won't recognize him as God. They won't recognize him as their creator. They don't deny that he exists, but they simply say, but I'm not going to give him any allegiance or worship. And so then it says, God gave them over to immorality. Stage two, this is verse 26. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over. There's that phrase. To degrading passions. So here you see naturalism. Instead of just saying, yeah, I know God exists. I just don't care to build my life around him. That was stage one. Now you have, we're going to elevate nature to the position of God. We're going to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then it says, God gave them over to degrading passions, which now it's not just immorality, it's perversity. It's twisted morality. Here's stage three. Just as they didn't, this is verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Here they they deny even that God exists. This is materialism. The material world is all there is. This is atheism. There is no God. And therefore God gives them over to irrationality. Now, in most of the other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where this phrase gave them over is used, it is used of a judicial consignment to hand someone over for punishment. And oh, by the way, notice verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This stage three of God's judgment is one in which it's not just irrational immorality, but it's vigorous applause for those who join them in living with God factored out of the equation. Basically, we want to live with God in no way a part of what we're doing. We just want to live with him out of the picture. And we applaud anyone who is coming from that place. So what I want to do is, this is a culture, all right? And as you can see, initially, there's, there's some light there. But what Romans is saying is that there comes a point in which a people decide, <clears throat> we, yeah, God may exist, but I don't want to honor him as God. And so God gives them over, and it gets dimmer. And then we get to stage three, and the light goes dimmer. And then they decide, we deny the existence of God. The material world is all there is, and the light goes very dim. In fact, you can hardly see it. And basically what's happening is God is withdrawing his presence. He's giving them over. You want to you live in a world with me factored out of the equation? Okay. Now, you and I, we talked about this two sermons ago. You and I are light. And when the culture goes dim, a culture that says, I want to be left in the dark. When somebody turns the light on when you're trying to sleep, how do you feel? The culture is going dim. And yet, if you know Jesus Christ, you're connected to the light and to the life. And so the world is going to be mad at you. 
and mad at me. To the degree this is us, that we are the light in a dark place. Jesus says what he does in the passage we're looking at today because it is absolutely vital. Because the world is going to hate us because we belong to him and in us the light shines. So with that as background, we'll jump into our passage. So now we're at John 15, verses 18 through 25. So I invite you to turn there. And just so it isn't messing with your eyes, I'm going to turn off the believers a minute here, okay? (laughs) But it's not because... Now, see, the world doesn't bother your eyes because they're so dim. But but just know that they're on, okay? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the world here refers to the system of organized society that is hostile to God. And it's under Satan's power. For example, earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus said this in chapter 14, verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. At this time, this light bulb is the domain of the enemy. And it is hostile. And Jesus says, the hatred you experience is derivative. You will be hated because of me that's the reason verse 19 if you are of the world the world would love its own but because you're not of the world but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you the reason we are hated is because we have plugged into the light source we have plugged into Jesus the life of Christ is inside of us and that's why the world hates us because it is pro-darkness you can't choose both by the way you can't choose light and dark One is dimming dimming, and one is brightening. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Now, you can't be a friend of the world without being hostile toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what James says. Bottom line is we don't belong here. Our home is with Jesus We belong with him. And there's going to come a day, we're going to talk about it next week, when we're going there. And I so can't wait. But we got a job to do. We are here on a mission. And Jesus wants to make sure you know you are on a mission in a place that is hostile to you. A place where you will be hated. It says in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He took us. If you know Jesus Christ, there came a point in which he took you from this dimming, dimming world and decided, I'm going to plug you into me and you are going to be a source of light. Here's one core exercise you can use. Pain is your friend. When you are rejected, you can actually grow your ability to live for Jesus' pleasure alone. I'm going to describe an account. I will leave names and so on out, but where I had an opportunity to use this. Um, I had given counsel to a group as regards something that, from my perspective, 
and from God's perspective was the right thing to do. But basically, the group said, not buying it. We do not agree with what you're saying. And so I had to run to this passage, which to me is the, you know, anyone who's serving Christ is a lifeline passage. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, which says, but it is a small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, but I am not by this acquitted, for the one who examines me is the Lord. The only one whose opinion of me matters is the Lord. So when the world says, shut up, Jim, stop telling me the truth about Jesus, I don't have to be worried about that. Because there's only one whose opinion of me matters, and that's the Lord. And I can actually use that incident as a way to remind me, you know what, I need to remember this, that in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter what someone else thinks except to the degree that it aligns with what Jesus thinks. Because I'm here to serve him. You're here to serve him. Don't go into hiding. It would be very easy for us to, for example, let's say, you know, we got our lights on here, kind of cover up so the world can't see. Jesus talked about that. Don't hide your light under a, a lamp stand. Don't hide it under a bush or something like that. Let it burn. We've been sent into the world. This is our mission, but Jesus wants to embrace our mission with our eyes wide open. In another passage in Luke 10.3, he says, Behold, He's saying, get this in your, this is a command. Picture this. I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Is there any doubt about, you know, is he saying, hey, I want you to live luxuriously and in comfort and in peace. He's saying, here's what I'm asking you to do. Be a lamb in the midst of the wolves. That's who we are. That's what we're about. In verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Persecution is to be expected for servants of Christ. There will be some who respond well to our message, and in so doing, they show us how they would respond if Jesus himself was there. You can actually turn persecution into affirmation. If you are persecuted for the cause of Christ, someone is actually saying to you, you're the real thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> I love this passage. This is from Acts 5, 40 through 42. And I'll just read a couple parts of it for you. So the apostles were brought in for sharing the name of Jesus. And it says, after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So basically, they were brought in and basically they whipped them, flogged them. And said, stop talking about Jesus. Now, if, you were, if we had a video camera and could watch them coming out from there, what would you, what would you think you're seeing? You know, oh. Man, that was so bad. So they went out from the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. 
they came out of the council, the apostles, high-fiving each other and saying, that was so awesome. Jesus actually considered us worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. Loving it. (laughs) Can you imagine that? They considered persecution a privilege. And then it says, and every day from the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The root cause of this hatred toward us is that they don't know God. They ultimately aren't plugged into the light source. They don't have a light bulb that's on. There will be some individually who are less hostile. Someday I'll tell you about sheep of peace and what that means. But there will be some who are less hostile to our message. And there's an opportunity there. But the default position of the world, the world system, is animosity based on ignorance of God. Verse 22 and 23 says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. The watchman principle is found in Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 7. And basically what it says is that if the watchman doesn't sound the alarm, then part of the responsibility for those who are injured lies with him. But if the watchman sounds the alarm then he is innocent of the blood of those who ignore the warning. And Jesus is basically saying, I came and I communicated everything that anyone needs to know in order to escape this world that is falling apart. No one can say, but I didn't know. He also is saying, hatred of Jesus demonstrates hatred of God. If you hate Jesus, which means you're going to hate Jesus' people, you also are going to be a hater of God. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus has given no cause for hatred. He did nothing. He was in every respect perfectly innocent, pure, true, right. In fact, he sought to promote the good of those who were persecuting him. He died for their sins. He was slain even though there was absolutely nothing he had done to warrant that treatment. To embrace his message, for someone in the world, to embrace the message of Christ means I have to admit I've got a problem. There's something not right with me. They have to admit I'm a sinner. And that implication is a, something that puts people off. That's so offensive that you would not say, I'm, I'm a good person. Well, let me take this passage because this is, a, this is a hard pill to swallow. Nobody likes to be hated. And Jesus would say, I want you to actually value being hated by the world 
in the same way that I was. So let me make some application points here and just tell you some ways in which we can make this practical. Now I'm going to uh, read from a couple other passages in the Upper Room Discourse in which this one piece concept is reinforced. For example, in John 14, 27, he says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now here's what I love. You will be hated by the world, but you have peace for me. I am going to give you this inner sense of peace. Don't allow your heart, that's a, a, a third person imperative. We don't have those in English. But the best way to explain it would be uh, don't give your heart permission to become fearful. Uh, don't give your heart permission. Just say, stop that. Don't be troubled. Don't be fearful. Instead, reach into the peace that he is giving you. Persecution is ultimately inconsequential. <laughs> Just saying, really? Yeah, because I can rejoice in the fact that my peace is not dependent on the world's approval or favorable circumstances. Mine is a peace that comes from Jesus. Yours too, if you know him. It grows out of a reconciled relationship with Jesus. That's my bedrock. You know, in preparation for the sermon, I've talked with some individuals who have struggled with rejection from family. They've actually talked about you know, here's, here's someone who the family has written this person off, won't talk to them. And it's because of their relationship with Jesus. I can't imagine the pain of that. Even rejection from family is not rejection from father. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father will say of all who know Jesus, you're my child. Nothing can change that. And I don't care what the world says about you. What I say is you're my child and I love you. And I love you like I love Jesus. And that can't change and that won't change. And so whenever I'm persecuted, what I do is I hold on to that peace, God's opinion of me. And that's what grounds me. Yours is a peace that comes from Jesus, grows out of a reconciled relationship with Father, and that is your bedrock. And I don't care if the world hates me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Application number two, look to the end. In John 16, 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The fact that Jesus has successfully defied the world, which he did when he died on the cross, he actually defied the world and the world system, we already know how things are going to end. I mean, get this. The world is saying, where's it all going? I know. We win. You know. We win. 
Because Jesus has already successfully overcome the world. So this world is not going to extinguish us. So when you encounter cost or sacrifice or tribulation or hatred because you would dare to name the name of Jesus and make him known, you remind yourself, I know where this is going. We know. We win. Application three, show your ID. Jesus commands us to use our time on earth to make disciples, but to do so fully aware that we're operating in hostile territory. In Matthew 10, 38, he said, he who does not take up his cross and follow me, get this, is not worthy of me. Someone who takes up a cross says, I'm prepared to die for Jesus. And someone who says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Jesus would say, not worthy. When we follow Jesus undaunted by persecution, we clearly demonstrate that we belong with him. We are the real thing. Have you made Jesus known in a place where it has been costly to do so? Congratulations. Only the real thing people can do that. Application number four, use opposition to go higher. I am reasonably confident that following Jesus is going to become increasingly costly in the days ahead. First of Anne is going to celebrate its 100-year anniversary in 2035. I am absolutely confident that the landscape is going to be very different. Persecution is to be expected, and in fact, it's actually something that you can value. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Persecution is a grace trigger. When we are persecuted, God actually supplies something called sustaining grace that allows us to accomplish things that are off the chart in terms of what they do. For example, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Here's what Paul says. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for me. That's this sustaining grace. For power is perfected in weakness. That's what God said to Paul when he was saying, could I please have a little easier go here? Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my wickedness, weakness, excuse me, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with, get this, weaknesses, insults, distress, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. That's key. It needs to be because we're doing what Jesus wants us to. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm persecuted, God pours on the power. I can share Christ in a place where it is costly. I can live the real deal in a world that is getting darker and darker. And that's when God decides, and I'm going to work through that in a way where I'm going to use the lever principle. I'm going to take of your humble efforts something that actually moves mountains and something even greater actually allows people who are in the clutches of the enemy to have their eyes opened and to become a servant of Jesus Christ. For Paul, persecution unlocks this sustaining grace that allows him to take his devotion to Christ to new heights 
It allows him to see God working through him in more vivid ways. In fact, I get the sense that Paul actually used the presence of persecution as a way to view where he should put his time and energy. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 16. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective service has opened to me. I wrote about this in the last issue of the newsletter. Well, we get, we're tracking with you, Paul. You're going to stay in Ephesus because there's a wide open door that's been thrown open. Obviously, great things are happening. Then he adds this. I've decided to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. (laughs) What? Yeah. There's a lot of opposition. So obviously the enemy doesn't want me in this spot. I'm going in and I'm going deep and I'm going full on hard going after it. Application five, follow his lead. This one I think is really hard. But I say to you who hear, this is Jesus talking in a different context, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. The world is going to hate us. It'd be so easy to stick it to them, to respond in kind. But Jesus doesn't want us to do that. He says, I want you to love your enemies. Now, by love, that doesn't mean you affirm what they say. Sometimes telling someone what they need to hear is love. It means to operate, to promote the ultimate best interest of the person. Jesus wants us to follow his lead and do good to those who hate us. This is what he did. Even in his death, he died on the cross to promote the ultimate good of everybody in the darkening bulb. Now there is a priority. Galatians 6, uh, 10 says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That is, we are to do good to all men, especially those who name the name of Jesus. Jesus modeled this. Uh, I didn't uh, work through it with you, but one of the one-way passages, remember we've got, you know, one heart, one way, one truth, one life. One of the one-way passages is it's an extended one in John 13 in the Upper Room Discourse. And I'm going to read just a part of it to you. And then I want to explore what's going on here, okay? He had washed the disciples' feet. You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Who was seated there? Judas. Can you imagine? I mean, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around this. Jesus is washing the feet of the man who is within minutes going to walk out and set in motion the betrayal that leads to Jesus dying on the cross. And Jesus is washing his feet. That's how we are to operate toward this world. 
We are to be those who recognize that we are going to be hated, but we will do whatever is necessary to promote the true good of the people on this planet who frankly are on the Titanic listening to the orchestra as it continues to play and they're dancing while in fact the ship, they don't know it yet, is going down. And we are the ones who have been entrusted to make it known and to call them to come to Jesus. If your life is in Jesus, you've been plugged into the light, if you love him, if you trust his guidance, if you believe his word, if you've embraced your mission to make disciples, then the world will hate you. Expect it. But this is also an opportunity to give something costly to Jesus. Jesus gave us something costly, didn't he? He went to the cross. And he was on the receiving end of the hatred of this world for no cause. To the extent that I am persecuted for the cause of Christ, I get to say to him, it's like a love letter, you matter to me this much. And it's a reflection of what he did for us. And I can give him an exquisite gift when it is costly to name the name of Jesus. Peter said, John 13, in this upper room discourse, he said, Lord, why can, I, why can I not follow you right away? I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> Peter, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. That's not the end of the story. Yes, he did do exactly what Jesus predicted. He denied the Lord. But about 20 days later, after Jesus is resurrected, he's on the Sea of Galilee, and he's at the shore. Peter's out fishing. They recognize Jesus, and he throws himself into the water and comes, and there is Jesus. And Jesus says this to him, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my flock. And then what does Jesus say? That's not the end of the story. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen. You said, I will lay down my life for you. And you're going to lay your life down for me. Can you imagine what that did for Peter? I mean, here, here he's coming before Jesus and he's going, I bailed. I, I didn't lay down my life for you. I ran. And Jesus says, Peter, you love me. I know you love me. You are someday, someday going to do exactly what you said. And you're going to lay your life down for me. And you're going to give me a precious sacrifice. And Peter's going, yes. We live in a world that hates us. 
You can give something precious. I can give something precious to Jesus. And that is an all-in, on-fire allegiance to him to where even the world's hatred is converted into affirmation that I am his and he's all that matters. One piece. I am right with him. So go ahead and do your best. But I will give to Jesus whatever it takes, whatever it costs. And I want you to do the same. Let's pray. Deliver us from bondage to the good opinion of men. Help us not to fear the cost, but to embrace it. Help us this week to give you exquisite gifts of costly obedience and bold witness. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our peace. Amen.